Good morning, beloved. All right, so it's good to be together um, to dive into God's Word. Um, so as we get started, uh, I want to point out something that's probably pretty obvious, but often promises are accompanied by a sign. We talked about that a lot last week, like the rainbow was a sign, a reminder of a promise. And so in the same way, if you're married, you likely have a ring, and that is a sign of a promise or um, maybe it's a massive stack of fine print and signatures if you've ever bought a house or a car. Like there's, there are different ways that we signify or we make a sign of a promise that we are making, and it binds us together to whatever we have agreed to. Um, growing up, um, I just kind of like typical boy, just perpetually had at least a couple busted knuckles. And so there would just be like a couple open wounds or scabs or whatever on, on my hand. But I also have, you probably can't see it from there, but I have this nice little scar that kind of swoops. And so I'd have a couple busted knuckles and then this little smiley face. And it was nice. And it could be kind of like a reminder, like, smile. You have so much to smile about um, from all that pain. But, you know, um, it actually was not much of a reminder to be happy and smiley. Um, instead, um, that scar was there because of a day um, I was helping my father. He was building a dock. He was just the weird odd jobs that he got into. We're building a dock, and um, we had run a string, like a stringer. So this was like our straight edge, the string running out, that the dock is all going to come true to this string. And um, there's, there's two guys helping my dad, and they're out there, and they've got this big ladder, and they're driving this post down into the lake, and I'm probably ankle deep in water, whatever. There's cypress stumps all around us. And I'm standing there, the string is up above me, and I'm watching, and the guy on the ladder fell off the ladder, like really terrifying, fell off the ladder, and he fell on that string, and that string happened to come down on my hand, which was resting on a cypress stump. And so there's like terrifying moment where everyone's like, are you okay? He's down on the ground, like in the water really, but he's like, he's all right, and they're getting him up, and I'm just stuck because he's on the string, and the string is on me, and it's got me pinned to the stump, and there was nothing I could do. And it didn't occur to me to start screaming. Like, it was one of those, like, so bad, hurt so bad that, like, I just, I'm just stuck. Can't do anything. And so, really, this scar has been there for 30 years plus is just a reminder of my inability. Just when I am incapable of something, when I'm just utterly unable and what do you do when you are faced with your utter inability? When there's just nothing more that you can do. There's, there's nothing, you've tried, you've given it everything you have, and it's not enough. What do you do in the face of that? What do you do when you're reminded of that? Do you just sink into despair? Do you set your hope on something more? What do you do in the face of inability? And that is what we take into the text today as we're continuing in this series, kind of like a survey of Genesis, not going through every bit of it as we normally do when we go through books, but we're looking at generations. So looking at different major figures throughout this book and seeing what that tells us about who God is, who we are, and so forth. So last week, we had Noah. And so remember, we have creation, and then the population grows and grows and just exponentially huge. And then you get to this point where God's like, the whole earth is wicked. Like everything they do, it's just wicked. We're going to do a reset here. And so he floods the earth, but he preserves this one family. And this family is to preserve the promise that was given to Eve that one of her offspring would be at battle with the offspring of the serpent and would crush the head of the serpent. And so we're looking for that figure. So 
Population blows up and then it shrinks back down. Okay, now through this family. And at this point, it blows up again. And so we've come to this point where there's the famous story of the Tower of Babel or Babylon, um, where God confuses the language. That's where the word Babel, like we talk about babies babbling, that it's just nonsense. It comes from this because this is where God confuses their language, spreads them across the earth. And so the population, again, is huge. It has resulted in this great scattering. And now we ask, but what about that promise? Now that the world, the global population has been scattered, which family is going to have the offspring that's promised? And remember, we're supposed to be reading all of the scriptures looking for this one. Who is the one who's going to come and reverse this? Who's going to bring us back into the presence of life, the presence of God himself, to be right with God again? And so as we come to this, now we're about to see it focus back in. So Genesis chapter 12, if you have your copy of scripture, turn there with me. Genesis chapter 12, it's going to focus back in again, having that context that the world has blown up in population, dwindled down in the flood, and now blown back up and has been scattered at this point. So we're looking, where's the family? Where's the promise? And here we come to Genesis chapter 12, starting in the first verse. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we see it's focusing back in. This promised blessing is focused back in now through Abram. So we continue in verse four. What does he say? So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all, his, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Hear the language, reminisce of Genesis 3.15. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. And so again, the story is now focusing back in. We see specifically this family, Abram's family, is gonna be the offspring that was promised that somehow the promise is now going to come through this family. And so again, like if we're reading this in the storyline, this should be exciting. Like, okay, here it comes. Like we're, we're, getting, we're getting further in the, the development of this plot leading to the climax. We know it's gonna come through this family. And so this should be a significant family. God has given a promise to this family. This particular family is going to be a blessing. This promised blessing to them would go to all people. And Abram obeys. He hears this promise from God. He obeys. He takes everything he has and they go in obedience to what God has called him to. Now imagine what that is like. Maybe you've done that in your life. You felt the call of God. You heard the call of God on your life to leave everything that you knew and take great risk. And you imagine, that takes a lot of faith. Maybe you don't have to imagine again because you have done that. But you know the cost here. For him to leave what he knows and he's obeying, and obedience, it's faithfulness, because he believes. Abram goes, believing this promise of God. And so, Abram 
Now we're going we're gonna to fast track here a bit. But Abram goes to Canaan. They arrive in Canaan. A famine comes about. Um, there's a lack of food in the land. And so he flees to Egypt. So he goes south. If you're thinking of the ancient Near East, um, Israel, Canaan, this land is along the Mediterranean coast. And so he goes south, a little bit southwest. And he's going towards Egypt because the Nile is there. There's more fertile land, even though much of it is arid. There is a concentration of food and surplus there. And so he goes to Egypt. Um, He does some jacked up stuff. He's a little deceitful about his wife, who is beautiful. Um, That results in some horrific things. But they get out of there unscathed somehow. They come back to Canaan. But as they come back, um, there's a war between at least four kings. And they get pulled into it because, remember, Lot was introduced. That was Abram's nephew. Lot has been taken captive by some of these warlords. And so him and a lot of people have been taken. They've kidnapped. And Abram says, guys, we have a treaty. Let's go get him. Um, He's apparently very valiant in armor, uh, warfare, and all this stuff. And so he goes, he rescues his nephew and all these people. They bring them back. And on their way back, they go by this place that we would call Jerusalem. And the king of Salem and the king of Sodom both come out and they address Abram. And the king of Sodom seems to be just concerned about material things. But the king of Salem, um, whose name is Melchizedek, and so this is an interesting thing. This is another story. I'm sure some of you are like, please focus in on that. Um, But for another sermon. Uh, For today, just know it's a very fascinating figure, Melchizedek. He is a priest of the Most High God. And his name means king of righteousness. And Salem means peace. Shalom, peace. And so we know that Salem ultimately becomes Jerusalem, Jerusalem as we know it. And so you have the king of peace and the king of righteousness in this one figure. And he comes and he blesses Abram. And Abram gives him a tithe, 10% of the spoils of war. And then they move on. So there's all kinds of fascinating stuff in that. But now it leads us to where we are now. The king of Salem has blessed Abram. And now we move forward. Genesis chapter 15. Pick up in the first verse. Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. So Abram, here's this promise of God. Remember, when he was first called out of his his home to the land of Canaan, he was already 75 years old. You got any 75-year-olds ready to be a dad again? No. And most of us are like, biologically, it's not happening. If it hasn't happened at this point, it's not happening. Abraham and his wife, or Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and his wife, they're infertile. They're not able to have their own children. You know, he hears this promise of God that from your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations. I'll bless you, and I'll bless all the nations through you. He believes them, he leaves, and he comes here. And now God is reaffirming this promise. But Abraham at this point is like, look, one of my slaves is currently like on the will. He's, he's getting everything. Is that how this works? That a slave of mine? We, we can't have kids. But God says, no, 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 no. Not a slave. One of your own. You will have children. And your children, walk outside. Look outside your tent. Count those stars. And this is not Claremont, Florida. This is a long time ago with a lot less light pollution. 
you'd see a lot more stars. Like, hey, could you even count those? No, you can't. You're going to lose count. Your kids are going to be like that. A nation is coming from you. Abraham hears this. Part of that offspring is promised to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Remember, the one that we are looking for. Who's going to be the one to turn this all around? Abraham hears God reaffirming, giving the assurance of this promise. It stands. It's going to come about. And how does Abram respond? Look at verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Just like we talked about with Noah, who was called blameless, righteous, upstanding, And what was it that he preached as righteousness? Faith. That God has always considered our faith, our belief, our trust in him to be our righteousness. Nothing that we could do to earn this. Nothing we could do to deserve God's favor. But in grace, meaning undeserved favor, he says, I love you. That's would you just believe. And Abram believes God. His belief in God, his faith in God is considered his righteousness. It's in accounting terms, it's this imputation. that It has been credited to you as righteousness, the fact that you believe. This is our gospel. This is the good news, that we are dead sinners. Dead men cannot just say, let me wake up and come to life. We're dead. We are dead in sin. And yet dead in our sin, God loves us and called us to life. And he, by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of works. So no one can boast. It is the gift of God. You cannot earn salvation, but he freely gives it. And so would you just believe that Jesus is the sinless one, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He is the promised one. He's the one that we're looking forward to. He's the descendant of Abram, that in this family line, Jesus would come, be born of a virgin, sinless, live a perfect life, satisfy the law and all of its demands that we cannot. And then he would die the death that you and I deserve on a cross. All of our sin, all of our shame, the very wrath of God that is due on us would be absorbed in him, that he would take our punishment. And by his stripes, we would be healed. What a beautiful salvation this is. And it's just by faith that we cannot contribute to that. We don't earn it. We cannot now be good enough and somehow make our way into a right relationship with God. No, he says, no, you come here only through Jesus, only through this blood. Only by Jesus do we come back into the presence of life, of God himself, to be reunited, to be righteous before God. How? Just like with Abram. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram hears this promise of God. And he doesn't shy away from saying, this is my inability. I can't do this. We have many, many decades now of proving it's not working. And God says, believe me. And Abram says, I too. Can you believe the Lord? Can you just trust in God's ability? In the face of your inability, can you trust in God's ability? Whatever it is in your life right now, as there's some situation where you feel utterly lost. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go, who to turn to. I'm just lost. Or maybe you're stuck. Like you've given it. You've given it. Then I'll like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like white knuckling it. It's just not working. Are you stuck? You are incapable. You're unable. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're just deeply hurt. 
and it feels like the pain of this life could never be healed. Are you stuck? Are you unable? And can you hear the voice of God calling you to hope, calling you to look not at your ability, but to look at his ability and say, I believe you. Can you hear him? Will you trust in him and his ability? More than anything, will you trust in his ability to save you? To be the lover of your soul? To delight in you because he has made you delightful through the blood of Jesus? To believe in his ability to make all these things that are wrong right one day? That he's making all things new? Would you believe? Would you trust in him? And not trust in your own ability? Look at verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed through between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Ammonites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. God says, here's the thing, Abram. I'm giving all of this to your descendants. There's going to be a long period of time where they're going to go to a foreign land and they're going to be oppressed. But I'll judge that nation. We know that to be Exodus. As they come out of their enslavement in Egypt, they'll come back into this land and they'll drive out these horrific people. And that is the, the Canaan conquest that we read about in Joshua. Abram is being told all of this in advance. And God is saying, will you believe me? You'll possess it. But let me give you a sign. As I make this promise to you, as I make this covenant to you, let me give you a sign to know how this is going to go about. And so they engage in something called a blood covenant. And blood covenants were common in the ancient Near East. Um, and they're actually common. I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but I remember growing up, did you ever hear about being blood brothers? It's really disgusting. We don't encourage our kids to do this at all. Like, if it's icky and sticky, you don't touch it, all that kind of stuff. Like, we don't swap body fluids. But blood brothers, like, cut your hand or little prick of the finger or whatever. And the idea is, like, you spill blood, and the other person spills blood, and then you mingle that together with a firm handshake or whatever. And that was actually very common in the ancient Near East. Some form of a blood covenant, this intermingling of blood that would show union. 
Because body fluids were seen as sacred. Um, <laughs> my wife and I going through our, our reading plan, uh, we, when we went through Leviticus and all this stuff, it's just like, why? <laughs> There's all these rules about body emissions and all this weird stuff. And like, it's weird, but like, the idea is that body fluids are sacred because the essence of life is found in these fluids. And so not just the people of God, but even the pagans, they understood this. They're like, if you walk into the room and you see somebody on the floor and there's a lot of blood around them, it should be upsetting because that is life coming out of their body. And so in the same way, they're saying, we see these things, this blood as sacred. There is life bound up in this. And so when we make this blood covenant and we intermingle this blood, it's like to say, my life is now bound up in your life that I mean this promise in such a way that it should affect my life if it affects your life. And so they would have these different ceremonies of saying, part of my life is now bound up in your life as our blood mingles. Uh, One of the common ways is what happens here. And they would take it to a much more extreme than just simply cutting your hand or something and intermingling a little bit of your blood that hopefully doesn't go back into your body, but you know, Um, They would do these things. But in this case, what they would do is they would take these animals. As God says, you're going to take these animals, cut them in half, and you put half of the body on this side and half of the body on here, and they would dig a trench in the middle. And all the blood coming from, I know it's horrific. I thought about getting some pinatas and just dividing them up, but, you know, I I was told not to. But you'd have this trench in the middle as these animals are just sawn in two, hacked in two, half on this side, half on this side, and the blood would run into the trench in the middle and intermingle. And then the two parties, the two people who are part of this promise, they would walk down this corridor through the blood intermingling, and they would make their promise to each other. And the idea is that as they walked in the midst of that, they would see what's surrounding them and say, if I break this covenant, let it be to me as it is to them that I mean this so much, like these slaughtered animals, let my life be like theirs if I were to break this with you. It's binding. And there's real consequence for breaking it. And so deep trust is necessary for this. But do you see what has happened in this story? Abram slaughters these animals, divides them out, the blood is pouring and intermingling. And then some time passes. So you know, it's starting to smell pretty bad. The birds of prey are swooping down and he's having to drive them away. So he's probably exhausted at this one because the day has gone on. He's just trying to keep the predators away. Like, what, are we going to do this, God? Are we going to do this? Like, I heard you, but are we going to do this? I'm doing what you told me. And what happens to Abram? He falls asleep. That Abram has now fallen asleep. And in the night, God shows up. God shows up. Here he is, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. The presence of Yahweh has come down and passed between the divided animals. What is Abram doing? He's sleeping. He's not between the animals. As if to say from God, I will bear the curse. I will take the cost of this because you're not going to uphold it. God knew that we would not be able to keep the law. He knew, even with Abram, that Abram, you're never going to be able, but I'm able. This is what he does for us. This is a covenant of grace where God would walk the aisle through the blood and see the devastation of people who would be slaughtered, and he would say, I'll take the curse of all of it on myself. This this is really a one-way thing, guys. 
And this is true in the gospel, that the gospel is a covenant of grace, yet another promise that this one was pointing to where God would say, you're never gonna be able to do it yourselves. You're utterly incapable. You're not able, but I am able. And so I will walk this path. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus did not open his mouth. He marched to Calvary carrying his own cross until his body gave out and he had to have help. And they nailed his hands to a beam of wood, hoisted him up where he would suffocate and die. But he would die saying, it is finished, that he has become our propitiation. He's the covering so that we can come back to be with God forevermore. It's only by his blood that we're saved. That blood that would flow There's blood that would flow from Calvary and it would be our cleansing. So would you just trust him? Would you believe his promise like Abram that he believed God and it was counted as righteousness? That we believe God has already paid the debt. The covenant stands. There's a new covenant. It is the covenant and the blood of Jesus. And we could never even walk the aisle. But he has done it all himself. He is our salvation. This is grace. The ultimate covenant of grace. And Jesus' blood. So you see and believe. So we see Abram. He believed. And we have to ask ourselves, well, I believe. And whatever we're facing, but ultimate in that, is where are you going to spend eternity? Forever we will be with God by the blood of Jesus. Forever we will delight in him in a place where he will wipe away tears. He's coming and he's making all things new and he says, death will be no more. No more pain. The former things, they will all have passed away. We get to be with God forever, delighting in him because he has covered it all. It's all what he can do, not what we can do. If you don't know, if you believe this, you have questions today. Would you seek answers? I would ask you even in a pointed moment, will you believe this is good news? Will you believe it? So you can watch the news every day and it's very, it's vogue right now to watch news and say, but do I believe it? What's the narrative? You always have to decide whether you're going to believe news or not. I want to ask, will you believe this good news? And follower of Jesus, you believe this good news and you are called to share this good news. Who are you going to share it with? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this covenant that you gave to Abram and the way that you pictured that as a reminder of this promise in such a way that he would know it's only by grace and that would point us to the ultimate display of your grace, of your ultimate promise, the salvation that we have through your son, Jesus. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We give you all the glory for that because like Abram, we're just asleep, dead, stuck in our sin, but you have made us alive in Christ. So we'll praise you forevermore. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.